Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This week, how taxing our food could improve our health and the climate. You could save about 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. So that is more than global aviation uh, emits. And paralyzed monkeys walk again with the aid of a wireless brain-spine link. We turned it on, and on the very first day we tested it, the animal was showing a stepping movement of this paralyzed leg. And I remember a lot of screaming in this room because it seemed like incredible to observe this recovery. Plus, what neuroscience can learn from big physics. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 10th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Neuroscientists around the world are making their way to San Diego for the biggest neuro meeting of the year, the Society for Neuroscience Conference. In honour of the tens of thousands of attendees, we've got a couple of brain-themed tidbits for you this week. Take it away, Kerry. When neuroscientist Grégoire Courtine was in his late 20s, he was working as a postdoc in Los Angeles, figuring out how the brain and spinal cord control walking. And in studying how that works and what happens when it goes wrong, he started to meet patients with spinal cord injuries who were wheelchair-bound. It was a very strong moment for me because at the time I was 27 years old when I was a postdoc in Los Angeles and I was doing all this experiment with young male of my age, because you know, you have a lot of, of course, sport accidents, car accidents. It's almost like you can relate to them because of the age that is very similar, and that really created this bond that really encouraged me to, to follow this line of research. Gregoire has changed location, but his focus has stayed exactly the same. Trying really to develop intervention to improve recovery, the quality of life of people with spinal cord injury. His latest paper is a step towards that, in a field that's moving so quickly it can be hard to keep up. Gregoire and his team have created basically an artificial spinal cord. It's a wireless system that lets the brain talk to the legs when the cord itself has been damaged. So far they've tested it in monkeys. They had to cut the spinal cord on one side, which paralysed one of the monkey's back legs. So the way we do it is we have an you know, electrode that are located into the motor cortex, so really the region of the brain that normally control leg movements, and we send uh, the electrical signal that we record, this is the activity of the cells, to a computer externally. The computer receives the signal wirelessly and uses an algorithm to work out what movement the monkey was thinking about, whether to flex its foot, straighten or bend its leg, or stop walking entirely. 
Then it sends that information on, again wirelessly, to an implant that feeds a signal to the spine, below the site of the injury. So imagine a little stimulator, uh, the side of the matchbox basically, that is implanted within the abdomen, and this stimulator communicates with an electrode array located on, on the part of the spinal cord that normally controls the leg muscle. And the leg muscle moves as the brain intended. The implants worked just six days after the injury. You know, Kerry, we were the first one to be surprised. You know, I was in this very day when we turned on the brain-spine interface for the very first time with all my team. So we have like four engineers in the room, myself, a technician. We turned it on and on the very first day we tested it, the animal was showing like stepping movements of this paralyzed leg. And I remember a lot of screaming in this room because it seemed like incredible to observe this recovery. Gregoire Cortine's work is the latest in a slew of advances in the field of brain-computer interfaces. This started with brain control of um, computer cursors, brain control of um, prosthetic limbs. This is Andrew Jackson, who developed similar devices at Newcastle University in the UK, but didn't contribute to this paper. This has continued into um, now brain control of, of muscle stimulation to restore um, grasping movements to the upper limb. Researchers in the field have focused more on the upper limb, the arms and hands. And there's a lot of complexity in getting fingers to move and exert force in three dimensions in order to pick up a cup of coffee, for example. But, Gregoire says, even a small improvement here can change someone's life. Suddenly in your life, because of a prosthetic interface, you're able to grab a cup of coffee uh, and bring it to your mouth. Even if it's difficult, it really changes your life. But walking? It's all or nothing. If you don't almost walk normally, you will prefer to remain in the wheelchair that is actually more pragmatic for your daily life activities. That's because there are some different skills involved in walking than there are in grasping. There's quite a lot to um, locomotion, obviously. So when we're we're walking, we're not just moving our legs um, to to step. We're also um, controlling balance and we're we're coordinating activity across both sides of the legs. So so restoring um, movement to the legs brings with it a a, a different set of challenges to restoring um, grasping movement to the hand. Now, of course, monkeys walk on four legs, whereas humans have to balance on two. So solving the problem for them is a bit easier than it would be for us. And, Andrew Jackson says, human injuries are not as precise as the experimental injury, which only affected one back leg. But then again, in humans, damage to the spinal cord can be incomplete. There is quite a lot of um, circuitry actually within the spinal cord that often survives an injury. It seems to me quite feasible that that a similar technique um, could be used to generate walking in an individual who um, has both legs paralysed. These applications might not be that far away, Andrew says, judging by how quick progress has been so far. We're seeing a a remarkably fast translation from first demonstrations in monkeys um, actually then moving to to people. So in in the upper limb, um, we're seeing about a four or five year time lag. And I think it's uh, not unfeasible to think that that in the same um, period of time, we could be seeing uh, these kind of techniques of brain controlled spinal cord stimulation actually starting to be trialled in people as well. Gregoire Cortine has already begun a clinical trial of the spinal implant part of his device. For now, he's working with eight patients who use wheelchairs but still have some voluntary control over their lower limbs. Once he and his team have refined the spinal implant in those patients, they'll move on to testing the brain implant and hooking the two together at a later stage. And although progress is fast... You are not going to see tomorrow somebody walking in the street with a brain-spine interface. There are many, many challenges that we are going to face uh, in in the coming uh, 
decade probably to optimize all these interventions, but we are really committed to make this step forward. That was Grégoire Courtine, who is at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Before him, you heard from Andrew Jackson at Newcastle University in the UK. Andrew has written a news and views about the paper, and both the paper and the news and views can be found at nature.com slash nature. We have two videos about brain-computer interfaces on our YouTube channel, one from earlier this year where a paralysed man regained control of his own hand, and another from just a few years ago where a woman who had a stroke learned to control a robotic arm with her thoughts. YouTube.com slash naturevideochannel is the place to find those, and if you like what you see, why not subscribe? Still to come in the research highlights, we bring you bonobos with bad eyesight and plant roots that can see light. Before that, a paper in Nature Climate Change takes a look at the climate impact of our dinner plates. It asks if taxing food can make us both greener and healthier. Adam met up with the lead author, Marco Springman, to discuss this tasty topic over lunch. Adam, hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Have you eaten here before? No, actually not. Well, there are quite a few different options. Yeah, I think I'd take the stir-fry, that sounds good to me. So that's vegan, right? Yes. And you're vegan? That's right. When I first found out about sort of the health impacts, so sort of nine, ten years ago, I thought the evidence was strong enough for me to change my diet. Seems now more and more people are talking about veganism and vegetarianism in the context of climate as well. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, that's the nice thing about this general idea of plant-based diets. It has many positive impacts on all kinds of um, dimensions. Are policymakers looking at the climate impacts of food? No, not really much. Uh, I think that's one of the things that really has to has to change uh, to some degree. How much of our emissions right now are being caused by the, the food industry as a whole? It's about a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions that are due to, um, to what we eat. The food sector causes more greenhouse gas emissions than the transport sector. So it's clear we have to change our diets one form or another. What research has already been done on trying to affect the climate impacts of food? Most studies indicate a very strong uh, and large impact. The problem now is going from those sort of theoretical estimates of what is achievable to how to actually achieve it. And that's where, for example, pricing policies come in. So maybe we should try and order. Do you want to order first? Yeah, I'll take the stir-fry. I now feel like maybe I should go for a vegan option. I am going to have a a vegan burger. Uh, No cheese, please. Well, now that we, we feel quite well fed and our brains are probably working a little less well than they were before <laughs> the meal, could you tell me about this study that is coming out this week? So it's clear that one of the strongest factors influencing our consumption choices are prices. We looked at what are prices for climate damages in the future. Then we factored that into the price of foods depending on how much the foods emit. So we uh, analyzed that in a comprehensive and consistent way. When you use this model, what do you find about the impact, well, both on the climate and, and on people's health? So we find that there are always uh, some tax designs that you can think about that bring about both um, environmental and health benefits. 
So on a globally aggregated level, we find that you could save about 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. So that is more than global aviation uh, emits, for example. Um, and on the health side, we find that you could save about half a million lives due to dietary changes away from spe specifically meat-based uh, products to more fruits and vegetables, for example. You're looking across the whole world. Of course, there are some countries where people have limited access to food, so the idea of increasing the price on food is potentially quite a worrying one. If you would just plainly tax foods, then indeed where food availability would go down and you would have negative health impacts. So what is very important in those countries is to have some compensatory mechanisms, for example, taking parts of the revenues to make fruits and vegetables cheaper, which would have a health promoter impact. If we do that, we find that in any country we uh, can have both an environmental and a health benefit. Thanks a lot okay, for joining yeah, us. Thanks. <laughs> I'm back in the studio now where I'm joined by Laura Cornelson, who works on health economics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Laura, how much attention are the climate impacts of food getting at the moment? I think there is a, a growing academic interest in how we can achieve sustainable food systems that are good for the environment and that are good for people's health. So on the face of it, this study seems to achieve exactly that, improvements in health and reductions in emissions. How sure can we be that attacks like this would actually work as predicted? Whether the taxes work, um, you have to first ask, work on what? Um, so if you increase the price through a tax, then you are very likely to see a response in the in the demand, which would be a reduction, because this is sort of economics 101. Now, the other issue is whether uh, there's an impact also on other types of products. So if, if we increase the price of meat, um, what would happen to our consumption of fruit and vegetables, for example? these sort of substitutions to different types of foods can can emphasize the impact of the tax or they can uh, reduce it because they might be substituting to something that is of equal effect. Do you think there are certain countries or certain blocks of countries that would be ready to consider it or is this still very far from actually being implemented? Yes, it's a very tricky question. Um, but I don't see as I think people necessarily being ready for something like that. I mean, I think the reason being is that these foods are sort of part of our staple foods. Imposing a tax on these um, could have potentially a very uh, large regressive effect, which meaning that the people at lower incomes would have to pay a bigger proportion of their incomes on the tax. Taking that into consideration and knowing the limits of this study, what do you think is the most important work going forwards in researching this area? What is really different about this study is that it's looking across the world. It's, it's taking a very global approach because other studies are normally uh, just focusing on one country. I think, I think still quite a lot remains to be done. Um, it's definitely a step forward. So I think it's important to continue this discussion um, in research, and but, but also importantly look at the impacts on, on poorer households and, and importantly on low-income countries. That was Laura Cornelson. Before her, you heard from Marco Springman from the University of Oxford, whose paper is out in Nature Climate Change. Find the research at nature.com forward slash nclimate. In the news chat this week, we bring you our breakdown of the US election. What does the result mean for research? Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Sharmini Bundel. Plants can pipe light down their stems to their roots. 
plant roots produce a protein that responds to light, but how the light gets down there is a mystery. An international team studied this problem in the humble failcress, the botanical of choice for many plant scientists. They shone light on the stem while covering the soil and watched to see if the light-sensitive protein in the roots responded. They did, particularly to infrared and near-infrared light. Light seems to help the roots grow in the right direction. The journal Science Signaling has more. Elderly bonobos develop problems with their eyesight, just as humans often do. Researchers watched wild bonobos of different ages as they groomed each other, a task that requires careful attention to detail. Older bonobos held their heads further away from their hands while grooming, suggesting they were compensating for worsening close-up vision. In photographs from a few years earlier, the same animals were closer to their partners. Perhaps reading small print and using computers isn't causing long-sightedness, rather it's how the primate eye naturally ages. More in Current Biology. In December of 1949, at a meeting in Switzerland, the physicist Louis de Broglie suggested something that was to change the way science was done. He wanted to establish, quote, a laboratory or institution where it would be possible to do scientific work, but somehow beyond the framework of the different participating states, end quote. A few years later, the mammoth physics project CERN was born to fund and carry out research missions bigger than any one nation could manage. If it's worked for physics then why not for other sciences? In a comment piece this week, three neuroscientists argue that their discipline would benefit from a big international lab like those operated by CERN. After all, their question, how does the brain work, is pretty big. I called one of the neuroscientists, Alexandre Pouget, who's at the University of Geneva. I first asked him how neuroscience is traditionally done. Well, we've done pretty much the old-fashioned way we do science, mostly individual labs, you know, 5 to 20 people, working on one particular question uh, in a pretty focused way with one particular set of tools. But then increasingly in science, we do see this different strand of project, these giant projects, like uh, particularly in high-energy physics and things like that, like CERN and like the LIGO gravitational wave detector. Yes, absolutely. So in those cases, what happened is that as a science mature, um, people were faced with questions that became more and more complex, and more and more difficult, the kind of questions that simply cannot be tackled by a single lab or even just a few. But they had quite... Even though they're giant projects with lots of people involved, they had quite defined goals. Do we have a goal like that for the brain? Understand the brain seems a little bit broad. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that has been, I think, what has been stopping a large-scale project to work in neuroscience over the last 10, 20 years is, is indeed coming up with a question that is ambitious, exciting, but yet reachable within 5, 10 years. There are some projects that have been set up with kind of similar goals in mind. Could you just give me a little brief on the, the ecosystem of brain projects as they stand at the moment? Yeah, there are quite a few of the initiatives that are taking off. Uh, perhaps uh, one of the most well-known is a brain initiative in the US. However, uh, the brain initiative is really mostly about injecting massive amount of money in neuroscience, which is ex excellent news, uh, but without really trying to change the way we do science. After that, you have the Human Brain Project in Europe, 
uh, there there have been issues with uh, the goal, the scientific goal of the project, and now it's really a technology-oriented project, so not so much concentrated on understanding the brain, but rather developing tools. And perhaps the third one that I should mention right away is the one by the Allen Institute, funded by Paul Allen, uh, one of the co-founders of Microsoft who a few years ago I think was really a visionary and, and realized that a corporate style of institute could perhaps um, solve some of the important problems that we face right now in studying the brain. We should just disclose that, Alexandra, you and your colleague Zach Minen, who also co-authored the comment piece, um, were involved in the very earliest days of the Human Brain Project in Europe, but not anymore. So we have these two big projects, the Brain Initiative and the Human Brain Project, kind of both focusing on technology. And then on the other hand, we have the Allen Institute for Brain Science, which is this very corporate project. So what can we learn from how those are going so far and what you would like ideally to see happen? We think that actually one of the key is to have grassroots collaboration as opposed to what we typically have right now, which is um, some country or some funding institute in the world announced that they're going to inject some funds into a particular field. And then, uh, you know, scientists, let's face it, are very good at transforming their research so that it fits with whatever is the latest uh, funding uh, call. But it would make sense to have the scientists define what it is that they can study and then see whether we can capture the interest of the public and the funding agencies to pursue this kind of effort. And what would be an an example, perhaps, of a concrete goal? I mean, the Human Genome Project, for instance, said, right, we're going to sequence the human genome. And that seemed very kind of defined and difficult, but doable. In neuroscience, indeed, that's the issue. But I think that we're just at the point where we have enough experimental tools and enough theory to tackle what is effectively the fundamental question in neuroscience. How does the brain control behaviour? So uh, one possibility would be to put together a team of 20 to 50 labs, possibly more, that are focused on one particular behavior. So for for instance, uh, foraging behavior in rodents. It's a task that involves many, many different aspects, such as decision-making. There's an issue of navigation, figuring out where you are in the environment. Of course, a memory component of remembering where you have been, where you have found food, and also an optimization problem, which is trying to use as little energy as possible in the process of finding this food. So we can decompose the task into subtasks, and each of those tasks are, I believe, within grasp now in 10, 20 years if we get organised and we work together toward this common goal. And then we'll know everything about how rats forage for food. But will people who, are, who you're trying to kind of attract to fund this be like, well, I don't really care about how rats find food. I'd care about solving Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let's uh, be absolutely honest about this, uh, what we're advocating here. We're talking about basic science. We're talking really understanding uh, the brain for the sake of understanding the brain. But obviously, down the roads, there will be implication for understanding diseases and how the the human brain function as well. If we understand uh, decision-making, simple decision-making in animals, uh, it's absolutely obvious that this will have huge implication for understanding the human brain. And do you think we have everything we need to embark upon this now? I mean, are we set up in the right way with the technology that we have? And do we have enough scientists with the right mix of skills? Yeah, we definitely have that. Um, I think the main problems are sociological barriers between the labs um, and in the way we function. Uh, The main roadblocks are issues about uh, making sure people are willing to share data, which is a big, big issue. If you are in academia, it's a very, very competitive environment. Uh, there is issue about uh, standardization of the tools that we're using and the software that we're using. 
integrating the data from the different labs is almost impossible. Those are really the main obstacle that, that uh, we have to address if we want a collaboration to work. That was Alexandre Pouget, who, together with his colleagues Zachary Minan and Mark Hauser, has written a comment piece all about the idea for a big brain project. It's at nature.com nature. It's nearly news time and we'll be bringing you an update on that thing everyone's talking about, what BBC reporter Julia McFarlane called on Twitter the season finale of America. But first, a quick update. Last week, as part of Nature's special on being a young scientist, we asked Nature readers to send us their stories of starting up a career in science. Lots of people posted anonymously to our Tumblr page, Research Realities, and we thought we'd read you a short edit to give you a flavour. Here are just a few. What better way to make a depression factory than to set a lot of people up for jobs that don't exist? Here's the good part. It's going well for me. PhD was successfully defended. Second postdoc now, making progress into grant space. I look at every single other story on here and I'm better off. Now, here's the hashtag research reality. I still have no control. Every job after this one is an increasingly low-odds crapshoot. Even doing well and not starving in the meantime feels temporary. Stressful? Yeah. But is there anything else I'd rather be doing? Hell no. This job is awesome. If you're a young scientist or you know a young scientist, feel free to vent at researchrealities.tumblr.com. News now, and we have a selection of great stories about kittens. Only joking, we're talking about the US election result like everybody else. Senior reporter Heidi Ledford, who recently escaped from the Boston office to join us here in post-Europe Britain, to discuss, would you believe, President Trump... Mmm, that's what it is. <laughs> it has caught surprised, a lot of us by surprise. It has surprised everyone, um, and it's a it's a big unknown in lots of fields. Whatever your kind of major concern is, ours is research and science. Let's start with what we actually have heard Donald Trump say about science and research in the past. Not a great deal. Not a great deal. And um, I have heard him described as an anti-science president, and I think that's based on some of the comments that he has made in the past. Um, He has linked autism to childhood vaccines, uh, which is, of course, a link that has long been discredited. He has even at one point said climate change was a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. He made a a sort of bewildering comment, um, I think, last year on a talk show when someone asked him about the NIH and he said, oh, I hear terrible things about it, you know, which concerned a lot of biomedical reporters, but they also didn't know how seriously to take it. So, So those are some of the things that we have heard him say. Now, I did, you know, this morning in the wake of the news, I did go back and I looked at this uh, question and answer series that uh, that Scientific American ran with the with the different candidates, and I looked back, you know, paid more attention, I guess, to Trump's answers this time around, uh, and he does have things in there about. Um, making a commitment to invest in science and the importance of long-term investment in science, um, the importance of having a strong space program. He still does not come out in favor of addressing climate change. But, you know, there is you know, maybe some glimmer of hope for funding overall. And for the scientific community in general, and, and anecdotally, the reaction of scientists on Twitter has been, well, maybe the US isn't such a friendly place to work anymore. I mean, he's got 
very strong views on immigration that might affect science. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of the reaction, this sort of knee-jerk reaction, I guess, to the results last night has that we've seen on Twitter so far has been, um, you know, scientists saying, well, maybe the U.S. is not where I want to be to do my work after all. And there's a lot of concern. I think, you know, the, the funding climate has a lot of people worried, um, understandably. I think there has also been a lot of concern about having the topics of research questioned by politicians. So... I think there's some concern that Trump may feed into that a little bit more and having a Republican um, Senate and House uh, could also feed into that more because the Republicans have traditionally been the ones to sort of question the topics of various research projects funded by the government. What should we watch out for the answers to which questions are most pressing in the next few months as as Donald Trump um, appoints perhaps advisors and finds new people to be the head of NASA, for instance? There are several key appointments um, that we'll want to learn about. Uh, He's going to be able to appoint, for instance, the head of NASA or NOAA, um, key agencies, key science agencies. There's a Supreme Court vacancy that uh, Congress has pledged not to fill until the next president comes in. And now that that is President Trump, um, you said it. Well done. Yeah, I did it. Um, we uh, will be looking to see, you know, who is likely to be on that short list. And, it's, and then there's the usual, you know, there'll be the usual speculation who's going to be the science advisor um, and, and that sort of thing. But questions of kind of funding, um, NIH, biomedical funding, NASA funding, still just extraordinarily up in the air. I, I think so. I mean, we'll be getting some clarity from uh, Congress now that the election is over. Uh, I think we'll be hearing potentially a little about, for example, how much it's willing to fund um, for the U.S. Cancer Moonshot Initiative and things like that. So we may hear a little bit about that. Historically, Republicans were very pro-science funding. Um, And it used to be that the Democrats were the ones who were a little bit hesitant to put a lot of money into science because... Uh, They wanted more money for social programs. And over the recent years, that started to flip a bit. I think Republicans have become more concerned about tightening the budget. Um, Democrats have sort of embraced science and technology as a way of reviving economies. So um, but when it comes to, for example, biomedical funding, that is by it has bipartisan appeal. In terms of the polls, which we've talked about before at Nature, we've been interested in this kind of statistics behind them particularly because Brexit was very difficult to predict. The general election here in 2015 was widely got wrong by the polls. And again, here, I mean, it seemed like Clinton had lost a little bit of her lead, but was still in the lead going into Tuesday night. And that wasn't right. Yeah, I think, you know, we were really caught by surprise. I think the I noticed the newsroom this morning, I think, was full of very tired people who stayed up <laughs> late trying to figure out what was going on. Um, I think, you know, I went back and I reread a feature that we ran recently about polls and when I reread it this morning, I thought, you know, the question isn't really how they went wrong, but why we ever thought they would be right. I mean, you come away from that feature with a, with the, an image of a field really in flux and trying to deal with, you know, how do you grapple with changes because of mobile phones, for example, or what are the advantages and disadvantages of online polling? Or maybe there was oversampling of uh, people who voted in past elections, but, you know, maybe Trump pulled out people who hadn't voted in the last election, for example, things of those nature. So it's still debated quite a bit. But I, I you know, I came away with a, a feeling that I'm not going to be trusting the polls quite so much in the future (laughs) until at least they get some of these issues, these basic sort of structural issues sorted out. As reporters who deal in science, um, those are two worlds that really run on evidence and facts and finding out what's actually true. Donald Trump's campaign, I think it's safe to say, has not run like that. I mean, is there a concern that he just doesn't really kind of care about evidence and that evidence-based policy is going to take a bit of a hit? 
I think that is a big concern. I think that's a logical concern. And um, I mean, we're all just sort of grasping at what is he going to do with science because we can't really tell based on his statements. He's he's known for making, you know, one statement and then the opposite statement a little while later or pledging to fund this program, that program, but you don't know where the money's coming from. I mean, there's there's just so much that we don't know about him. It's re- He's really quite the wild card. All right. Well, Heidi, thank you for joining us. Listeners can find all of our election coverage, previous and ongoing, plus the feature that Heidi mentioned about polls online at nature.com slash US election 2016. And you can also go online to tell us your thoughts There's a form that we'd love you to fill in if you're a scientist or in the scientific community and uh, tell us what you think of President Trump. That's all for this week. You can always find us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or email us podcast at nature.com. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.